All right, so let's go ahead and get started. We got some people joining up, so we can go ahead and get rocking and rolling. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you guys are not familiar, this is Garrett Flock. Garrett actually came to the shop, oh, last year? Last, when was that? Jeez, the fall, spring? Um, yeah, it would have been, yep. Yeah, um, and we did the uh, the human factor stuff in-house, which is a very interesting uh interesting experience uh, <laughs> which is it was excellent but it was an interesting experience overall um gareth has a book under pressure and a website which i'll post up on these uh these that uh we actually require for our technical dive training and our uh professional dive training uh which i think is super valuable um so uh one of the first questions i got for you what current projects i know you got some stuff you're working on what current projects you kind of got going on that people can do kind of from home or just in general so uh, I always have the so the online micro class which is about sort of two and a half three hours worth of online training through sort of 15 20 minute segments about topics and um, that that's been really quite successful and, and a number of people like Jason who are using it as pre-learning for technical instructor development giving them a better insight into how people operate, why they behave the way they do, why they appear to do stupid stuff. Mm -hmm. and importantly, what we can do to improve our decision-making and situational awareness and things like that. Um, so that's always been a, an online offering. And now in the last couple of days, I've put together, and it starts on Monday, a 10-week webinar-based program. Similar to this, it's run through Zoom. Uh, and the idea is that once a week, we will meet for about 45, 60 minutes, delivering some theory, some content, case studies, um, and then there's about sort of 15 to 30 minutes of Q&A, and then they'll get homework to develop themselves further. Um, and then we come on the following week and we'll deliver another topic. So it's a 10-week program that starts on, on Monday. I ran a similar one a couple of years ago, and it was, it was really successful. So uh, if you visit the, the Human Diver page, um, there is a, a link for that. Uh, go off and and it's it's two hundred and fifty dollars for ten hours worth or in fact fifteen hours worth of work plus the homework that you get feedback on. Um, so it's it's all about developing you as an individual. It's trying to fill the gaps between the inability now to do face to face training um, that's obviously uh, limited globally in what we can do. Um, so that's uh, that the sort of the, the two projects, the online projects I've got at the moment, and anywhere on the blog. Um, if you've yeah, got yeah. time to read, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Which you should uh, at this point in time. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if, if, if you've got people who are uh, multilingual, I'm posting translations of the blogs up there and tagging them on uh, with the languages that are there. So I've got a number of instructors who have translated work. If you want to be, if you know, go on to Jason's list and speaks a uh, different language, give us a shout and um, we can put, uh, put a translated blog up there. Nice. Um, that online class you guys got going, are there spots left? Um, and what, can yeah, you talk yeah, a little bit so more about that? Like um, instructor level, yeah, what is that? Yeah, 15 slots left on that. Sorry. Um, is that for instructors only? Who's who? No, no, it's, it's, for, uh, it's for everybody, really. Anybody who's in a, I would say, a slightly higher risk environment. So instructors, tech divers, rebreather divers, cave divers. Um, it, it's equally applicable to open water, advanced open water, and, and that sort of level. Um, it's much harder to bring the relevance into the, the activity they're doing. Um, but it's also, you know, scientific divers, military divers, 
the same sort of uh, same sort of stuff as well. That's excellent. Um, and there's a cost associated to that. Um, yeah, so that's two hundred and fifty dollars. And what I'll do is I'll just find the uh, the page now and I'll post it in the chat window. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, webinar series uh, chat here we go that's available to everybody there um, yeah. I'll grab that out of there yeah and that's the the second one is a micro class the standard class that uh, has been available really which was was put together as a way of pre-learning for the people in in the two-day class um, that, that we you know were taught up at your place and then people yep. say, well, why don't you make this as a standalone product? Um, because the value can be learned there as well. It's the same stuff. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, it, the diving community is odd um, <laughs> like this and that some will go, oh, it's, it, it's too long. It's, you know, it's two and a half hours in total. And others go, well, it doesn't go into much detail here. That's all just like common sense. You know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we know what the, uh, the education is like in diving. Yeah. Oh, exactly. It's, it's not, I love I love the micro class. I've gone back through it a couple of times. Um, I've been quite impressed by it. So um, and it even tricks you when you when you don't expect it to. You're like, I know how this is gonna go. Like, oh, I messed it up again. <laughs> um, so uh, and then the forum's always active. I know on Facebook the forum. Oh, I, got, yeah. I posted that up. Uh, I can post that up again. But um, yeah, uh, the forum is nice and active and it's got a lot of good discussion so i've been that's a good thing for downtime to kind of chat with other people and get in some i'll go discussions it is good it, it's it's a grown-up forum as well which is realized that yep. you know and, and i don't have to do mo much moderation there's little bits but yep. in the main it's pretty grown up because people realize that actually that the whole concept of what i'm trying to teach is that that people are fallible yep. um and you know, you'll, you'll get a discussion piece or a little video clip or something, and, and it lulls people into, ah, this is, you know, they're, they're stupid. It was obvious that was going to happen. And then you start to turn the story around and people go, oh, yeah, I've made that mistake. Yeah. And, and it's this piece that, you know, people ask me, how do you, how do you teach people this in a non-confrontational way when, when we come to diving? It's like, well, I start by not talking about diving. I talk about things like where you've left your keys in a house mm -hmm. um, or you've missed a step in a, in a sequence um, in terms of a shopping list um, or you've, you know, you've done these stuff that's, there's nothing to do with diving and then segue into diving and saying, okay, that same thought process, that same communication or miscommunication that happened, that same lack of awareness that you've already described and accepted and know about in a non-diving framework, why would that be any different in the diving setup? Um, and it's like, oh yeah. And then we start to explore things in a in a, in a safe way that, that says that, you know what, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes. It doesn't matter how experienced you are, you will make mistakes. And the other bit is, no matter how experienced you are, you can always get better, even right. if it's only 1% or half a percent. It's all about having the mindset that says, how do we get better at these things? Right, yep. It's it's been very interesting um, working with like the debrief model quite often and, and all that. We use a debrief model a lot and seeing that mm -hmm. of being like, okay, when we first start out, we're like, okay, you guys need to kind of, uh, you know, uh, talk about, you know, things you did you know, that you could probably do better. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. 
okay. Well, let's try this model. All right. So these are things I did wrong, and we'll talk about debrief model in a minute. But and then my biggest issue is all right. So say something you did good. Well, despite no, no, no. Say something you did well. Like just give me a statement of something you did well. I really didn't do this. Like no, one thing you did well, and it become changes the entire thing. So um, you can explain it way better than I can. But can you give me just a or the people that are listening, just kind of an idea of what the debrief yeah. model is, because we use it a ton. Yeah, so the debrief model is is a structure, and it, it follows the, the, the sort of the word debrief. Um, each of the letters has a, has a meaning associated with it. And having a structured brief and a debrief really has a benefit for both you as the speaker, because now you know what you need to say, and it also has a benefit for the listener, because they know what's coming up next. Um, and so they can actually um, recognize that we don't need to raise some points early on because they're going to be covered later on from that. So the, the, the framework, the debrief itself, starts off with deep, which is define the aims and goals of the dive um, or of the training dive or the task at hand. Whilst I developed this for diving, it is applicable in all environments. So it's just about turning it around. So we'll talk about diving, but you can replace dive with task. So define the aims and goals of the dive and did we achieve them? And then the next bit is define the length of the debrief. Is this going to be a 10 minute thing or is this going to be about a 45 minute an hour long? It doesn't really matter. Now, defining the aims and goals of the task and, and the dive, that means that you should have had a brief to start with. So what was the purpose of the dive? Now, it might be as simple as we want to get in, swim around, have some fun and see some fish or a bit of wreck or something. Mm -hmm. Now that gives you a baseline to say, yeah, actually that was a successful dive because we achieved what it was. So start off with define the aims and goals. Did you achieve them? If not, well, we'll explore why that is. And if we did achieve them, we'll also explore. It's about setting the baseline. The next bit, the E, is about setting an example as a leader. Now, if we want to have a debrief as a learning opportunity, what that means is that the person who's leading the dive, be that an instructor or just as a, 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 a the team leader within the dive, we want to create learning within there. And that for that to happen, we've got to have psychological safety. That means that we have got to be vulnerable. It doesn't mean that we open ourselves totally up to, to ridicule and things. It is about recognizing our fallibility and that we're not perfect. And so, the E, set an example of leadership, talk about a mistake or an error that you made on that dive. Now that might be such a small thing. From an instructional setup, it might be that the instructor says, well, when you did that air share, I wasn't quite in the right place because I then couldn't see how you donated and made sure that you unfilled the long hose in the right way. That happened because I was distracted and we ran on from another drill and I didn't set myself up properly. Now that has two benefits. But the first benefit is the first, you know, is the fact that it shows I'm vulnerable, I'm fallible, I'm not perfect, I will make mistakes. The other benefit is that it allows the rest of the team to call you out if you start being um, criticizing others later on the debrief. So if you and I are in a debrief, Jason, and I don't do that, and I don't talk about a mistake that I've made, we come later on and we talk about something that's gone, you know, didn't go to plan. Uh, and I'll go, oh, Daniel, that was obvious that was going to happen. If I've talked about that already, you can say, well, hang on a minute, Gareth, you made a mistake too? Oh, yeah, okay. 
and it, and it empowers the people within the team to be able to speak up and challenge me if I'm leading the, the debrief. And that's really important when it comes to a student instructor relationship, because we want the, the students to recognize that even the instructors, they may be awesome in the water, they're still fallible. We've got to be able to teach the students to be able to speak up. I get that there is a gradient that says, you know, here's the, the instructor and here's the student. We can't be totally flat. There's always got to be something. But an instructor is a leader and they're leading a team of students. And what we're trying to do is reduce that gradient so that we teach the students that it is okay to challenge in the real world. And, you know, in November last year, I filmed a, a documentary out in Hawaii, which was going to be released at Tech Dive, but that's obviously being pushed to the right. And there were two people, or, you know, there's one of the people on the boat um, definitely felt that um, they should have said something at that time. And that's why the title of the documentary is If Only, and unfortunately it led to a fatality. That diver who sat there at the back of the boat going, you know what, this is rubbish. We need to be able to speak up. But culturally, they were all either serving or veterans. And so it was this piece that we don't critique in public. We, we praise in public and we critique in quiet. And unfortunately, um, Brian got off the boat with his oxygen turned off uh, and died of hypoxia. And there was a numerous opportunities to challenge what was going on, but we've got to create that psychological safety. So E is about setting the standard that says it is okay to talk about a mistake. And this is what it happened. And how did it develop in the way it did? Because that's the other piece. Just making an observation without understanding the reality of it um, doesn't necessarily help learning. Then we're talking to B, which is basics or background. Anything prior to you getting off the boat or jumping in the water or getting into the cave, um, it's about the pre-execution phase. How was the, the planning? How was the briefing? Um, did everything work out how we were expecting in terms of, say, gas analysis? Um, all the equipment that we wanted? Um, do we have any issues before we even got in the water uh, that we decided that we were going to carry? So that is the pre-execution. Then we talk about review, R for review of execution. And that really is um, high level, three or four key points in the dive. That might be descending down the shot line. Um, was it where we were expecting? Then we turned off and we went down and, and visited that part of the wreck or so and so. These are big big area points. It's not giving a one-to-one um, -one narrative of what happened on the dive uh, because that just gets really boring. And then the real learning happens, which is the I and the E of debrief. The I is internal. What did I do well and why? And what did I do? What do I need to do to improve? And how am I going to do it? And that there, out of those sort of four questions, you know, what did I do well and why? What do we need to improve on and how? The two most important questions are why and how. Observations are easy. Um, and we can say, oh, yeah, the communications was good. All right, why was the communication was good? Or, you know, and what do I need to improve in? Oh, I need to have better teamwork. Well, that doesn't really help us either because it doesn't say, how do we get better? Often debriefs end up in generalities. They're just general phrases that don't necessarily help anybody. And what I'd say to people is, you know, Communication, team communications was good. Well, that doesn't help us learn. As a, a better example, when we were swimming along next to the wreck and you were pointing a light in front of me, I could see you were there all the time. So I knew you were in the right place and I knew you were there. 
thank you. That's how we need to re you know continue to do that. That is a much bigger way of expanding on communications was good because what was good about the communications we need to be specific um, and you know it might be a case of um, what do we need to what do I need to improve on? well when I gave you the deco seat you know how much deco we were going to do on that stop um, I didn't get an acknowledgement back um, I need to be more um, uh, clear and get that response back and I'm not going to carry on until I have got that response back. So again, we go back into the details rather than the generalities. So I is internal. What did I do well? What uh, why? What do we need to improve on and how? E is external. What did the team do well and why? What did the team need to improve on and how? And we go to exactly the same framework. We look for details and we look for stuff to reinforce and we look for stuff to um, fix the, the next time, how we're going to do it. And the way that I teach those debriefs is we run it, the, the team leader, the, the dive leader runs the debrief, it could be the instructor. They run through the D, E, B, R, and I and E for myself. And then I will go around the rest of the team and I'll say to Jason, I'll say to John, I'll say to Bob, okay, what's your I and E? What's your I and E? What's your I and E? And then we can actually get some clear learning because the, the best part about the debrief is when stuff gets told and people go, oh, I didn't know that. Is that why you did that? All right. And you get these light bulb moments. And the whole benefit and the real reason for the debrief is so that we can learn and, and you know make decision, better decisions the next time and improve our situational awareness. And the final piece for the F for the debrief is follow up or file. So we've just done an activity. We've just done a dive. We've gone through the debrief, so we've identified a bunch of stuff that we could learn from. And then the F is about putting it in place. That might be that we need to file an incident report, or we need to submit some new paperwork. We need to modify our procedures. We need to fix that O-ring that's bubbling that happens. Um, and, and it's just like, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, if you don't actually put a process in place to address those issues you've identified, the next dive, you'll go off, and you'll identify those same issues again. Oh, man, I, I wish I'd done this. And sometimes it's not as simple as just saying, I will fix it. It's about coming up with another process to trap you. So I, I had a student on a class recently operated. They, they live out and work out in Egypt. They run multiple dives in the day. And they leave their stages on the reef uh, while they go off and do sort of lunch and debrief. And then they get back in again. And so they end up with sand and grit and things like this. And they, at the end of the day, they'll finish the second dive and it's like, oh, the, the reg's bubbling. I need, to, I need to remember that. And then somebody else cleans up the cylinders that are on the reef and the, the regs don't get sorted because they're too busy doing other things. So I said, come up with another process that says, when you go to close the dive center down at the end of the day, there should be a notice board, you know, a checklist that says any kit needs servicing. And as a prompt for people go, oh, yeah, because if we've forgotten something, the chances of us remembering it are pretty slim until there is a trigger point that says, I need to do that. Um, so coming up with thinking about, you know, why do we fail? Why do we forget things? Um, so that's why the debrief structure is the way it is, so that we can remember what the letters are. And we get to the end of the debrief, make a note in the wet notes or put a knot in your reg to know that it needs to be dealt with. 
as a it's like sort of a, a knot in a piece of string you know something to trigger that memory yeah so, <laughs> a, a good blast of what the debrief's about. Oh, God. And it's and so much comes out of that because that, and that's the exact same experience we've had with it is, you know, you start to change these things, start to add them, and we've started um, utilizing uh, Google Sheets that people can change at the pool so that it shows up at the shop and we can all see it and all these things to encourage communication. Oh, wow. cool. uh, yeah, so it, it pops up on a TV in the back room so we know, like, what equipment they need and... Um, if gear needs service, it can go right on there. If the, if the student has some particular need or something we really need to work on, it pops right up and everyone has communication, um, which has been great. Um, so, oh, so many things come out of that debrief com conversation. You you hit on so many things when you talk about it that, um, so like closed loop communication. Let's talk a second about closed loop communication. So many people don't really do great closed loop communication. Um, they do throw, any closed loop or any, yeah. Um, they throw a signal at somebody, and then um, one of the other notes I had is basically the failure of the OK hand signal. So if I give you a disco hand signal and you just give me OK back, everybody just throws OK. It, yeah. And it's just automatic. You threw me a hand signal, yeah, sure, whatever. But there was no identification of, of actually like understanding. So can you talk a yes. minute about that um, as opposed yeah, to me sure. so, on? I'll talk about, you know, sort of basic communication to start with and what lots of people think communication, and to a certain extent it is, is I transmit information and, and that is communication. Now, the assumption is that you've heard it and you've understood it and you've understood the intent and you will then action on that. And that's simple one-way communications. And as one of the examples in the class, you know, if I said to you, tree, what would you mean? What's the first, just describe the sort of first tree that you're talking about if I said tree? Oh, probably a maple tree. <laughs> okay, yeah. so is, is that because there's lots of maple trees around you? Yeah, that's it, yep. So <laughs> I, I was thinking of a, a conifer because that's, you know, a Leylandi actually, because that's yeah. what we've got in our back garden. So I, I could say tree, but it's a very non um, nondescript word. And it's like saying deco and then you go okay back. Well, that doesn't really help because I don't know if okay means okay or okay i've understood or yes i'm going to do that so we have you know simple communications goes out that way and we don't get anything meaningful back closed loop communications is where i give you a specific piece of information and you come back with some information and i confirm so i'll go deco here two minutes and i would expect you to go deco here two minutes and now i know that you've understood what it is now, underwater, there's a limited amount of vocabulary um, just because of <laughs> you can get the wet notes out. Now, that's much easier because now you can write some stuff. Um, so your communication is much more simplified underwater. Um, and as long as we've got standard hand signals, that can help us. Because if I did that to you, what would that mean? Uh, hold. Okay. So other people might be 500 PSI or uh -huh. 50 yeah. bar. Yep. Um, so when we end up mixing sort of recreational mm -hmm. and technical diving, we could have some miscommunication that's oh, there. Absolutely. So arranging, you know, being clear what hand signals mean uh, before we get in the water uh, is really important. So the closed loop communications, there's two parts to it in terms of um, surface type is I will say your name as well. So I'll say Jason. And as soon as I say your name, your ears will prick up and go, oh, this is for me. Mm -hmm. And now I can give you an instruction and then you can confirm back to me what that instruction is. Now, if I really want to check your understanding, I might give you a longer 
um, piece. And then I'll say, in your own words, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because if I said to you, in your own words, now you have to understand and translate it and come back to me. Because the normal response would be, did you understand that? And the response would be, yes, because I don't want to show that I haven't understood it. I don't want to look stupid in front of my peers because they all obviously did because they, they're all looking happy and I'm not quite understanding. And I may not want to have that conversation. But if I ask you to tell me what I've just told you, well, if you just parrot back to me exactly my words, that doesn't check that you've understood what it is. So actually, if I say to you, tell me in your own words what that means, now you have to do a bit of comprehension to say, hmm, what does that mean? And as an example, when we, we do a rec brief and we're going to go down the shot line and you know the guide or the leader describes what's going to happen on, on the dive. And the normal question would be, does everybody understand that? And, and <laughs> always it will be, yeah, okay, we understand that. God, I hate that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know how to do this, right? Uh, yes. All right. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so you almost create the situation where failure will happen. Mm -hmm. So a way of saying, okay, you've just done this. Um, Jason, we're going to go on the shot line. What are you going to see and which way are we going to turn? And how do you know which way to turn? And now it's like, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I'm and, 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 you know, if I'm giving the brief, I don't even have to hear you say those words. I can see your body language oh, yeah. that has that sort of confusion on your face. And you go, all right, fine. And, and you don't need to say, I'll save you the embarrassment because that closes the conversation down as well. Mm -hmm. It's this bit of, okay, I, I wasn't clear enough because that's one of the key bits of communication. If I'm speaking to you, Jason, and you don't understand me, most of that is on me to make sure that you've understood it. And I might need to simplify the message. I might need to draw a picture. That is a valid way of communicating. So we need to understand, you know, from a communicator point of view, does the listener understand? And you can pick up that lack of comprehension, a lot of it on nonverbal communications. Does the person have a face that doesn't look quite right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, all right, fine. I've missed that point. I will explain again. Because now I'm showing that it's my problem, not yours. Well, I told you once. It's, how much more do you need? Oh, right. Great. Well, that means that I'm never going to ask any questions again yep. because I don't want to be looked like, you know, made a fool of in front of the rest of us. Yeah. So communication yeah, really is powerful. Yeah. That communication thing with, with classroom management of being like, okay, clearly I didn't explain this the way that you understand. Like, let's go back through and let me see if I can figure out some other way to do that makes it so much yeah. easier. And you have to read that body language. And the, the oh, you're yes. saying, saying someone's name just brings up the fact that, all right, everybody, you, you might send, like, as you're talking, I'm writing stuff down, like, oh, I want to talk about that. Like, all right, so I'm not drifting off. I got a pretty good job of coming back at you. But other students might start to write and be like, start daydreaming and thinking about what they're going to talk about next. And then active listening is gone. And you got to give them that opportunity to come back around and say, okay, like, let's process that and see, what are you working on? What, what's, what's going on in your head? What are you trying to figure out? Which is, you know, what's stuck on? Um, Exactly. And yeah. so that, that piece there, we're talking, you know, trying to bring people back into the classroom and, and making sure into the room and making sure that they are paying attention. Um, I don't know whether or not it's you know part of your instructor training. One of the bits that I was taught when I was going through my own military development was this pose, pause, pounce. Yep. Um, because if you pose the question to everybody 
and then pause so that people comprehend and then you nominate an individual. Um, and at that stage, everybody thinking, oh, is the question for me? <laughs> Whereas actually, Jason, what I'd like you to do is explain this. And as soon as I say, Jason, everybody else goes, and you know, there's, there's lots of little tricks in, in terms of how we manage that communication, whether or not we have open or closed questions, you know, understanding what is the purpose of that. There are lots of times where closed questions like what's your gas pressure, which, you know, tell me the direction we're going to swim. What's the maximum depth? What's your maximum endurance? Well, all of those things you can answer with closed responses. But if you want to be curious and you want to check understanding, that, that's where you ask open questions. And describe is the easiest way of asking an open question. Describe to me what you're going to do. Because you, it's very difficult to answer that yes, no. And if you do, you're going to look like a bit of a fool in yeah. front of everybody else because they know you're going to be avoiding the question. Mm -hmm. So that's the easiest word to start a question set with um, if you want to be, uh, be curious. Yeah. So one of the things you going back to the debrief model that you had talked about previously is you mentioned um, in giving feedback, um, it's kind of an offshoot of it, but in giving feedback, like, oh, the way you had that light position really helped me out. And um, this is, since you said that, it brings up something I struggle with as a, a tactical instructor all the time. People are like, why do I need a light? Because basically that's my body language. Like I'm yeah. watching your light. I am looking to see what the deal is. And people are like, I don't need the light. Like you do from a team perspective. Like I need to be able to give a glance and go one, two, three. All right, we've got a team of four. I see my light. We're good. Those aren't shaking. They're not moving. Everybody's good. And at least we can communicate that way. And I think people don't realize that I, I count that as a form of body language, that I'm looking at oh, that definitely. as body language. Yeah. So when I started diving, you know, I trained GUE with GUE in 2006. I did fundamentals. And then I used to diving in the primary light. And then I went diving with some of my old club who, who would just didn't know anything about this. And you'd see the lights waggling around and it's like you turn around and go, what's up? Um, and you just, it was a bit like the boy who cried wolf all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you start to sort of disengage from that. And an exercise we did with some friends to show the importance of light was the fact that we were swimming in limited visibility, probably, I'm going to say 20 feet or so, um, you know, less than that. And what we did was we then basically hung back and hung back and just see how long it was before they swam off and, and they, they reached the limit of visibility. And we basically sat uh, at the limit of visibility swimming behind them. And, and it took a while. And this bit about, you know, keeping an eye on your buddy, um, normal swimming pace, you can go a long way mm -hmm. um, and you've then lost them. Yep. Now, all right, fine. I know there is solar diving. It's not what I do. Um, and teams are there because you can provide mutual support to each other. Now you're in this situation that you're on your own you're going to try and find each other. Um, otherwise, you thumb the dive. And there are lots of people who swim around at the bottom because they go, oh, I want to be down here. I've missed my buddy. And it'll be okay. Uh, and and they've, they've compromised their safety net that's there. Um, and so one of the benefits of having a light is, actually, we don't have to end the dive quite so early because you will notice when somebody is missing mm -hmm. because the light's not there anymore now i get that when you've got you know caribbean reefs 
um, you know, and you, it, it just it's a different ball game. It, it just doesn't work as well. In which case, you now have to be much closer so that you can just look at each other simply as opposed to, <clears throat> where are they? Yep. Because as humans, we're efficient creatures. We don't like to expend energy. Mm-hmm. And we don't like to, um, you know, anything that we can reduce do to reduce friction in our decision-making process has got to be a good thing. So if you're going to be in really good conditions, be close to each other um, so you can look across. Um, the temptation is then you then come a long way apart because, hey, I've got like, you know, 100, meter, 100 foot visibility. Yeah. It can be over there. Yeah. All right. Can you do a breath hold, a half breath hold swim on 100 feet? Mm, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> so it's now up or it's across. Which uh-huh. one are you going to do? So, yeah. Once people get passive like communications, it is so hard to give it up. Um, yeah. and, and you're right about the body language. You can see where people are agitated right um, yeah. so yeah you got that notorious person that's above you behind you and you're like this way this way and then they're up there and you're like, yeah God, where are you at least with the yeah. light they can shine it and you're like why are you there come on down <laughs> you know which is you know when you then come to the debrief is you can say actually where you were i couldn't see right. you and that was acting as a stressor and that meant that my dive wasn't as enjoyable well what you stressed about because i'm responsible for you and you know, in, in terms of a team, we are mutually responsible yeah, for each other. Exactly. Um, and we're trying to look out for each other. And if you're not there, I need to know where you are yep. because we've got this this mutual peace. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I get it. It's hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things we ran into, and I, I don't know your opinion on this. I don't think we've discussed this before. But um, when you start doing the debrief of plan versus goal and, and what your goals are, and I think people have different discussions on this and why, but um, – we ran into a little bit of an incident where people's plans were their goals. I want to hit 155 feet. Um, my take personally is that's not a goal. That's a plan. Um, <laughs> unless you specifically are trying to move up to a portion where I'm going to a known spot for 155 because that's where the wreck's going to be and I'm running a thing. But just to reach a goal of... 160 feet or 130 feet for recreational people. Um, what's your take on plans versus goal and should they be different? Um, yes. And uh, I, I'm aligned with your position there. I, I had a, an interesting discussion with a, an organization recently. They were, they were talking about doing, because they've got a currency requirement to go and do a 200 foot dive um, to, to maintain their currency for their mm-hmm. qualifications. And I said, so what's the purpose of that? Well, because we've got to hit 200 feet. Okay. And does that mean you've got any time limit while you're down there? You know, we can do a bounce dive to 200 feet and that's it. Okay. So what's the purpose of going to there? Um, Are you going to do some skills? No, no, we're just going to swim around. Okay. This is a planning exercise. All right, fine. So do you need to go to 200 feet just for that? Probably not. So the plan to me is, you know, what is it you're going to achieve? as part of the executed process but goals shouldn't drive the plans unless you're what you're saying there is it is a um uh, a specific requirement but i would say even at a training agency piece of right you have a 200 foot ticket from a class um right we are going to die to 200 feet why or even you know what's even bigger is the the 300 foot ticket mm-hmm. right oh, yeah. so yeah. what we're going to do is we're going to dive to 300 feet and we'll get a ticket there because i can say that i've dived to 300 feet okay so what's the purpose of the training dive 
It's to give you the skills to execute the dive properly and manage contingency operations. Do you need to be at 300 feet to do that? Uh, maybe not. Okay, so why expose yourself to a risk that doesn't necessarily need to be there? Right. Um, so the, in terms of the goal, what is it with depth? To me, I mean, separating, depth should not be goals, full yep. stop. Yeah. Um, so activities can be goals, mm -hmm. um, but and then they are built into the plan, but depth should not be goals uh, for depth's sake. If you're yep. going to go and take a photo of a wreck that's at 300 feet, that is what the goal is. It right. is not about getting 300 feet on my computer to say, right. I've done 300 feet. Yeah, workup dives, hard. getting there. I want to work out my kit. I'm working with some other people. We're trying to do some deeper ones where you don't have any other distractions. Okay, that's fine. But yeah. just, I want to hit this number to hit this number. And what we've seen with that, um, which I'm sure that with accident analysis and stuff like that is, so suddenly your goal is this, but it's also your dive plan. Well, we're, it makes it very hard for a person to it to we've discussed this before it makes the person hard to turn because all right we're at one uh, say it's recreational they say we're at 120 we're trying to get to 130 but we should turn at 120 they well i'm only 10 feet away like all yes. right now you're starting to put that psychology in of being like well that depth adds a little bit of safety concern oh, you right. should be able to turn yeah so so, yeah, there is a concept, destructive goal pursuit. And there's yep. a lot of issues out there. You know, Everest is a classic one with, um, with the, the multiple fatalities and the two world-renowned guides there and understanding the pressures behind them. And, uh, and Doc Deep is, is a classic diving example mm -hmm. um, of, I've got oh, to get yeah, this done. Yeah. And multiple people <laughs> are saying, no, this isn't how we should be doing it. Right. And, yep. and surrounding yourself with yes people is not, you know, is guaranteed you to try to get to the goal what you want is somebody who's going to be a dissenter who's going to challenge what's there and say no actually we need to change uh, we, we need to back off from this yeah. and that is also part of the strength of a team this piece that anybody can thumb a dive at any time for any reason is easy to say but it's much harder to actually do however in the brief if you have stated those um non-crossables you know the lines in the sand and, and that might be gas consumption, it might be time, it might be depth. But as long as you've outlined those early on, then we've got some clarity and that gives those within the team something to hang their hat on and say, no, we agreed this and we are turning around now. I don't care if we've got, you know, the bell is over there. Uh, oh, no, 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 we're gonna, you know, we've got to go back up. Yeah. But we might get that. and. You know, it's one of the case studies in the micro, micro class is of a guy who was trying to recover an anchor who did 200 feet to the surface in 120 seconds because the goal fixation and unsurprisingly died. Um, and the goal fixation was all about recovering the anchor from the bottom. Uh, and unfortunately, it cost him his life when he ran out of gas yeah. because he'd sent up a couple of lift bags already and he just ran out of gas. And his buddy was there. But there's a sort of lot of sort of psychological pressure of, I don't want to be the fool. Um, I don't want to go to you because I've run out of gas. Um, and people go, well, that's irrational. <laughs> yes, people are predictably irrational. Yeah. But if we understand that process, what we can do is try and manage that 
a bit better. And there's a lot of human factor stuff in that case study that's highlighted for people to, yeah. to learn. There's some interesting ones out there with all that stuff, looking at you know the micro class and the book and all that stuff and, and the different case studies of you, you like, like you said, like, well, that's predictable. Why, why would they do that? It's completely predictable. That, that's foolish. But there's so much that goes into it, which um, which kind of leads us into, well, two things. One quick, and then we'll get to a, the bigger one. Um, the be careful or be more aware. <laughs> um, <laughs> just Yeah. The worst accident sort of uh, analysis or the, the sort of the, uh, the corrective actions of be, you know, be careful, be safe, <laughs> pay more attention. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you you lost situational awareness. You go, okay, fine. We have a finite capacity to pay attention to what's going on. And a concept I came across last year, um, and I don't know if you covered it in your class actually, was this dippy. Um, mm. So if something is, you know, we've got the five senses and we're, we're processing lots and lots of information and we're ditching most of it because we go, it's irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant. Oh, that's interesting. You know, squirrel. Um, so, you know, our brains are wired to look for things that are dangerous, they're interesting, they're pleasurable, or they're important. If they sit in one of those four things, then our attention will be drawn to them. And that means that our attention drops everything else we were looking at. Um, so, and that's this, this problem with saying, pay more attention. We can't pay more attention. It's a, it's a finite capacity. We can jump around the scene and pick up things but we've got to know what's important, which again goes back to the value of the debrief, because you might have, by diving with a more experienced person, you might pick up something that's important in terms of, say, current or visibility or depth or hazards that are on site, or even just undertaking the task. Mm -hmm. um, so to say to somebody, pay more attention, the better question is, what was taking your attention away from the, the thing in question? And the normal thing that we miss is gas consumption, that we are task loaded. When we've not got into a habit that says every five minutes we check our gas, our depth, our time, and a general idea of where we are. If we haven't got that, we need something to trigger our gas consumption. Um, and that means that we've got to recognize it's important. And it might be that the fish are more important, the photography is important, the videography or the line laying. Whatever that task is, will take our attention away from monitoring the gas. So we've got to be conscious of the fact that we perceive the, the task work that needs to be done to be more important than the looking after our gas or our deco limits or our PO2 from a rebreather. Yep. Um, and we've got to recognize that we are fallible in that sense. And if we recognize we're fallible, we can start to develop strategies to mitigate that. But just to say, be careful, pay more attention. Um, it just doesn't doesn't happen. Yeah, and those list of things you you listed are ridiculously more important than the picture and all that stuff. You know, the PO2, the gas consumption, the the no NDLs, like no deco stuff, like all that, or well, no stop limits. Um, but like, yeah. that's yeah, that is that's so well, much it, more. This is hindsight, right? And this is the, the the difficulty when we look at incidents and accidents. We've got a clarity that was not available to those at the time because we know what the outcome is with 100% certainty because that's what history shows. And as we look back through time, we start to pick up relevant factors that lead to that because we know their significance. We know it's important or relevant. And we start going, oh, there's that, and there's that, and there's that, and there's that. In real time, looking forward, 
we don't know what the future looks like with 100% reliability, with 100% certainty. So we make best guesses of what we think the future will look like, and we start going that way. Um, and if we don't know that something is important, we won't see it. Yep. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's easy in hindsight to judge things. And I think that's one of the, one of the bits that I've, I'm, I'm so passionate about is trying to get people to look at things differently. Ultimately, it must have made sense for that person to do whatever they did, even if it was, in hindsight, blatantly obvious it was going to end up as a disaster. It can't have been that obvious to the individual because otherwise they wouldn't have done that activity. So what we need to look at is how did it make sense for them to do it? Not why, because why is a judgmental word. I'm asking you to justify to me why you did it. If I asked you, how did it make sense? Now that's a, I'm asking you to create a narrative that's not about you as an individual. It's about the activity itself. And so it's depersonalized and we've got a much better chance of actually learning from it um, because people don't feel threatened by having to, to tell a how story as opposed to a why story. Yeah. Um, one of the things we, we took, now that we've got all this downtime at this point, um, we're going to be able to actually execute a little bit better. But uh, so one of the things that we've been talking about from the instructor standpoint is, all right, so pilots make checklists. Okay. Technical divers make checklists. Rebreather divers should be using the checklist. Unfortunately, the number of people that jump in with their O2 off is ridiculously high. I don't really understand that, but that's a checklist issue. And then we get to open water students and we go, nah, you can just memorize this uh, acronym we gave you and you'll be good. Yep. Um, so we're going to start printing off checklists for uh, our students so they can have it on a little plastic card. You know, we've got the card printer because mm -hmm. we can print it. But um, so we're going to start printing off those cards and just making more checklists, which I think is a massive uh, benefit. It's a big step forward. I suppose another way of solving that problem, and I'm you know, a big, strong advocate of um, checklists to, to, that make sense and they fit mm -hmm. the operational environment. Um, if you're going to be diving on your own, a written checklist and following it with a, a place marker like your mm -hmm. finger is, is really important. If you're diving in as a pair or a team, then using a, a verbal checklist like BWRAF um, and cross-checking what the other person does is a good way because actually what I'm doing is I'm as a team we will hold each other accountable to what the standard is yep. and again we go back to developing teamwork and psychological safety if we're diving together and I say B for buoyancy um, and I do my bits and I expect you to do and you haven't done it I'm able to challenge you and say no actually Jason shows you buoyancy stuff oh, okay and I'll do this so checklists have a place um, definitely, what we don't want to do is put checklists in for checklists. Per, right. you know, the, so it's just for the sake of it. And right. as an example, we have um, we've had issues in the UK with the um, surgical safety checklist, where trusts are that the hospitals and, and, and the groups are um, punished for when those checklists are not complete. Uh, yeah. Um, so all that happens now is you end up with a tick box exercise. And I would say certain parts of the dive industry are very similar as well, where as long as the paperwork and the slates are all ticked off, then you're safe. And yep. you sit there and go, actually, it's the action associated with the checklist is what keeps you safe, not the checklist itself. It's a tool to facilitate performance. The checklist should not be the metric of 
performance. It should be the action associated with that. Yep. So what I've started doing with um, my scientific divers is I give them an assignment where they come in with their checklist and they're bringing it, bring it, bring it, bring it your checklist, your pre-dive checklist. So they bring it in and I go, cover it up, read it back to me, pure memorization. And they're like, ah, I kind of got through it. Maybe I'm making some things up. I said, well, it, and like you said, it's meaningful. So I'm like, who wrote that? Somebody someplace else wrote that. So we make our own checklist in our scientific diving class being like, okay, make your checklist. We're going to make it in a Google doc. Everybody can add to it. And then we're going to streamline it and tweak it. But we're, you're going to make your checklist. So it's meaningful to you because, you know, and then we oversee it with someone that's got experience because yeah. <laughs> they, they can't leave oh, yeah, some exactly. certain things off. But so we've been doing and, that exercise. And the advantage of having that. And so the benefit of checklists is the standardization across the community that will use them. And this is where I have a, a bit of an issue with um, rebreather students writing their own pre-dive checklists based on their instructor's teachings. Um, and what happens then is if those rebreather divers dive with other rebreather divers, you have an inconsistent checklist. So when we are reading those checklists, is it, and, and we're, we're cross-checking each other, is it that you didn't do something because you missed it out or is it because it's not in your checklist? Um, and so that's the real benefit of checklists across a community is we can hold each other accountable to that. I get the, the reason why is now you understand how your rebreather is built and how you need to get it put together for you. Yeah. Like, okay, that's fine for you, but we should be looking at the team and then we can hold each other accountable when the checklists aren't done. Yeah, and, that's um, and I get that that is a big conflict. Now, if you were just teaching those those scientific divers and they come up with the same, uh, and you can nudge them in the way of, of coming exactly. up with a standardized yeah. checklist, that's great. Yeah, Because now they can start to hold each other accountable when they go back to their their, uh, their research units. We bring it back full circle and, and compare yeah. everything and then make sure that everything's there. Maybe it's their own wording, but it's the same kind of standardized type of thing, but it's, yeah, we go around and around. Um, so let's talk about um, just culture a little bit because and it, it's mm. it, apparently I'm going back to the medical field for the next few weeks um, and helping out. So uh, just culture is always a, a good discussion and we got um, about 10 minutes or so left for our, our yeah. planned talk. So let's uh, go ahead and talk about just culture a little bit. Yeah, just culture is it, fundamentally it's recognizing that we are fallible and we should take into account experience and the skill set and the knowledge and the drivers of the individual at that time but at the same time recognizing that willful negligence sabotage and violations for personal gain need to be punished um, now punishment shouldn't be the first toolbox that the, the first tool that comes out of the box because we've got to understand the context and again we go back to how did it make sense for that person to be there um, so within the aviation industry, that's where it's been driven a lot um, because they recognize that there are so many stories that could be told about errors and mistakes and rule breaking that's there that if we don't unearth them and we don't share them, the community as a whole does not improve. Um, and there is this, there is legal protection for most aviation um, organizations at a, at a national level. So they, they're in a unique position that allows them to have legal protection 
the information that is submitted in an incident report for safety purposes cannot be used for punishment or disciplinary action. Um, and that protects the individuals to be candid and open and talk about the mistakes and the errors and the violations that they themselves have made. The organizations, it might be the airlines or it might be their traffic agency or the maintenance company, um, they will do an internal investigation to understand what the systemic problems were. Because if people are making the same mistakes again and again, it is unlikely to be an individual issue. It's more likely to be a systemic issue. And so we've got to be able to tell those context-rich stories um, with some level of protection. Now, the guiding industry is a bit difficult with that, especially in the States where litigation just uh, the drop of a hat. Um, and, and I, uh, I take my hat off to anybody who teaches out there um, <laughs> because of, uh, of the, the, the constant threat of, of being sued. And, and whilst insurance might pay and you might win, it, it's, it's a pain, it takes time, and it takes money. And, and as a whole, the premiums go up across the industry. So the just culture piece is, let's understand how it made sense. Get them to tell a context-rich narrative, lots of details. What were the drivers? You know, how much money have they got? Are they, are they running short of cash, which is why they haven't undertaken this? And people go, well, you don't have the money, you shouldn't go diving. Well, that's really easy when you've got money and you're able to go diving and they haven't. Yep. So they're making a constant trade-off between behind these, these sort of decisions. And because the community doesn't talk about these sorts of issues very often, we don't know the real prevalence. So we don't know how risky it is. And we could say the same thing about Corona globally at the moment. <laughs> yep. We've only got you know, the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how much is out there, but we're trying to make informed decisions. And, and because we've got a lot of media interest, now that's raising the concerns that there. So in the diving industry, we don't talk about the near misses that are there because there is a fear of being put down or retribution in a social media manner because there are those who, the, the Monday morning quarterbacks or armchair quarterbacks, what do you call them, just sit there and go, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Okay, well, that's fine, but you're not that person. Yep. So let's understand their experience knowledge. So one of those questions is look at a peer uh, environment. Would somebody with the same knowledge, the same experience, the same drivers, the same equipment, skill set, would they make the same mistake? Yes. All right. It's not an individual issue. And it's, it's trying to divorce yourself when you ask those questions from the knowledge of the outcome. Because it's really easy to sit there and go, well, yeah, because they, they would have seen that. Go, why, why didn't they? Mm -hmm. And it's about turning these things on our heads. And that's really, and I think things have started to change, I would say, probably in the last five years, more so in the last couple, where people are now starting to look at incidents from a different perspective rather than, well, they were stupid. That was obvious. I wouldn't have done that. All right, fine. Let's put you. And, and I think that's where the classes that I teach, where I put people in uncertain situations, they've never encountered it before, and they all make the same mistakes yep. because we're all wired the same way. And I've manufactured a situation that makes errors more likely because we've got stress, we've got time, we've got um, things that need to be done. There's a competitive factor. And all that does is it creates greater error producing conditions so that people are more likely to make a mistake. And we debrief it in a, a non-confrontational manner. And that's really what 
which I, I don't know if you're going to touch on it only because that's where I, I would like to go now. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, which then segues into this fatality that happened in May 2018 with Brian Bucky, who got off the back of a boat on a training dive on a rebreather with his oxygen turned off. And he drowned a few minutes later when he went hypoxic because his loop went hypoxic. Uh, he was in the shallows. The, the rebreather was still in surface mode. So it was planned on a PO2 of 0.4. Um, the oxygen cylinder was turned off. He pre-breathed on the boat. Um, it was a bright, sunny day. He's got a head-up display. There's a buddy light. He should have been monitoring the handsets. But there are a whole bunch of other issues which we're going to cover in the, the documentary. And what I really want for that documentary is to turn the people's perspective around from saying that shouldn't have happened because this failed, this failed, this failed. Yeah, I know those all failed. That's that's telling a story that, that happened. Yeah, we know that. But let's understand how it made sense for that situation to be there um, and look at things differently. It, it's a very emotive documentary. We've got probably it's about nearly 30 minutes long. We've got 15 minutes worth of face-to-camera work with Ashley, who's the widow, and we've got three other team members on the boat that day um, and telling their narrative of the months and days and hours going up to the dive as to what was creating the conditions that were there, such that Brian felt pressured. Unfortunately, we can't ask him because he's he's dead. Um, And that's another thing is, Fatalities, in my perspective, are a rubbish way of learning because mm-hmm. you can't ask the decision maker how it made sense because they're normally dead, which is why near misses become really important. So we've got a rough idea of how it made sense for Brian to do what he did and why it was difficult for the others to question and challenge what was going on and to, to be able to tell it in a really – it's a powerful story. It's very emotive. Um, and so there's the narratives – and then there's, I bring the theory into it near the end and explain how it made sense for them to do what they did and what we can do differently as a community to change attitudes to errors and violations and try and create a better just culture. We're not going to get to the level of aviation because we're never going to get the legal protection that's there. But we can certainly change things at a dive club, at a, an expedition level, at a small community level maybe at a training agency level, but as a global community, I'd love it, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> no. Um, so before I go on to the next kind of topic, release of the film, what's the plan? Do you guys have a plan now for that? Because I was curious about that. So um, it, it really depends on what's happening around the globe at the end of April. Okay. Um, it, the, the scheduled release date is the 25th of April. That was going to be on Saturday lunchtime at Tech Dive USA, which has yep. been postponed um if things are all going horribly wrong around the globe with regard to coronavirus we will push it back later in the year okay. uh, because it just wouldn't be right yep. to do that yep. and the idea is that will be released globally it will go go out on uh, youtube and vimeo and i'm in the process of putting together a workbook that will be available to run in parallel with the video so Thanks. instructors instructor trainers training agencies can use this as a, as a training tool that says, okay, so this is about situational awareness and decision-making and communications and teamwork, leadership, and performance-shaping factors. All of these non-technical skills that go into making a high-performance team, 
is we can pull apart the, the, the documentary and give them something that they can talk to their students about. Good. Um, so I got two topics I want to talk about. You can do them whatever order you want to do them based off of as you see fit. Um, survivorship bias and normalization of deviance. Um, I think those both kind of stem from what you got going from the last conversation we had. And um, so I don't know which order you want to do them in, but go right ahead. I'll do survivorship bias first, and, and then I'll go to normalization of deviance because I think that's probably the more important way. Yeah. Survivorship bias is um, you get there and you don't necessarily realize, or you look at others. And, and how they succeeded, the tip of the iceberg, and you yeah. don't see how much failure was required to get to that point. The, the modern sort of GoPro culture of, we see some amazing stills and, and video footage, and we think we can replicate that really easily. And we don't see the amount of blood, sweat, and tears, and hardship, and money, and time investment to get to that point. Um, and it's great to idolize these people, but we don't, we don't see that stuff because that's not sexy. We don't see how much effort's required to be good as an instructor or as a, an explorer from that perspective. Yep. Um, and, and, that, and as a consequence, as a community, we don't share our bad stories. So all we see is the good stuff. And yep. we don't see those little things that are going wrong. And if we knew how often those little things go wrong, then actually we might change our behaviors which then leads into that normalization of deviance piece that we have standards. We have, you know, and I'll basically use a little model to, to describe this. Um, we have standards, we have safety protocols, we have processes that are in place. And I get that a lot of the training agencies there, the way that they're written, those standards are written. Yes, it's about performance in the class, but it's also about protecting organizations from, from liability. Yeah. Um, so we have some standards that are here and we dive against those. And then we make some errors and we mistakes and things. And we don't notice that because we don't have any feedback. We don't have a debrief or anything else like that. But we start to deviate as humans do, which is normal to drift. And so we, we drift a little bit. And now we set this up as our new baseline. And that might take days, weeks, months. And we, we've now got a new standard. And we start operating there. And we start drifting a bit further. And we now start operating this. Nothing bad has happened at this stage but we're getting more efficient, we're getting better at what we do, we can get more students through a class, we can go longer, we can make our cylinders last longer, all of these bits, and we're eroding the safety margins. We don't know where these, these things are, so we set another baseline and we drift a bit. We, we carry on doing this, and we get to a point where we step over the cliff, and we don't know where that cliff edge is, because just the way that safety works, there are multiple factors. And in hindsight, people go, how come you drifted from here to here? And you go, I didn't, I didn't go from there to there. I went from here to here. Well, no, no, there's the standards and this is what you're doing. Yeah, but we, we deal with things in relative rather than absolute terms. So I'm looking at a little delta here that's, that's just become normal. And, and you can say an easy example in diving is minimum gas. You know, we start off with beyond the surface with 500 PSI or 50 bar. <laughs> well, to me, that's a meaningless concept anyway because you don't know how much you're going to send right. but so let's say that we're going to leave the bottom with 800 psi and over a period of time we start to extend our bottom time we start to see things and we erode that to 700 psi and it's like well it's only 100 psi it's not that much of a problem so we now set the baseline at 700 psi to leave the bottom for a standard depth 
And then after a while, we start to extend our things because actually when we get back on the boat, we've got loads of gas. Why do I need to give that gas back to the dive shop? I can get more time underwater. So I now erode that and I'll say, right, I'm going to get to 500 bar. I'll leave the bottom with five, sorry, 500 PSI. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll send it back. And we start to erode those margins. Then all of a sudden, we end up having a situation where we've got a gas share with somebody or we've got a stronger current to go to or something like this. And we actually run out of gas on the ascent because we haven't taken into account. And people would go, why did you go from 700 PSI to or 800 PSI to here? You go, no, no, I, only, I was only eroding a little margin. Um, and that's why having standards is really important. And that's why I was saying about team standards. If you know what the team standard is, you can hold each other accountable to it. Um, and you can call each other on it. Um, and recognizing that yeah, people can thumb a dive at any time. Well, they should just get a big cylinder. Okay, that works for them yeah. until you do a gas sharing situation. And they're now breathing off your cylinder. Yeah. And they've got a higher consumption rate than you. And now you don't have enough gas to ascend to the surface. Yeah. So these biases are there all the time. They allow us to get things, you know, to eke little bits out of the system, but they all erode our safety margins. Um, and, you know, as a team, as an organization, whatever, you need to dis define what those are. And then it's much easier to call a dive and hold each other accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, that really puts right into effect what, what I think I saw on the Instagram, your Instagram account was the, uh, the absence of accidents is not safety. You know, that's that concept of just because, you know, I could quite literally take uh, a bow and arrow and shoot an arrow out my front door right now. If I don't kill somebody, it doesn't mean it's safe. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah. nothing safe about that, but you know, definitely. Yeah. So building on that one is, um, you know, safety is not just the absence of accidents and incidents but rather the presence of barriers and defenses and the capacity of the system to fail safely. So whatever we're doing, it's about this bit of if we fail, when we fail, are we able to fail safely? And there's a limit to how many failures you can deal with in terms of catastrophic failures. Um, so you've got to manage that point. Um, and that's normally going to be based on biases of, of, of how much feedback you get. But whatever you do, ask that question if it goes wrong how do i deal with this not oh, i might not or um it's about when does it go wrong how do we deal with it yeah that's good um swiss cheese model just a quick little like teaser don't go too far we'll leave it at yeah, the, sure. just a general and then uh let people look it up and find it on the website how about that yeah that sounds great right. um Swiss cheese model, 1990, Professor James Reason, the guy behind the book, Human Error, came up with a concept that said, we put these barriers in place, um, but because we humans are fallible, um, those barriers are never perfect. Uh, and so they allow an error to propagate through to a, uh, a failure. And the reason why it's a Swiss cheese model is because you can line slices of cheese up and when you look right through the hole, then we end up with an accident. Um, it's a really simple model. It's probably too simplistic, but it gets the idea across that there are um, things that we can do to reduce the size of those holes, reduce the number of them, and then potentially plug them because as people, we create safety all the time because none of the procedures are perfect. None of the equipment's perfect. The environment changes all the time. 
So we as individuals dynamically create safety to plug those holes. And it's when we run out of fingers is when we end up with accidents. Good deal. Cool. Um, we have, not that the time really matters all that much to me, but we have ran over a little bit and I think we've covered a yeah. whole lot of stuff. Um, as always, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. I enjoy it every single Just time. Really so, um, and I'll post some links up and this will be saved on Facebook Live on the Facebook uh, account. So um, cool. we'll go from there. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate Perfect. it. Thank you, Jason. Really appreciate it. And anybody got any questions, I'm open for, for contact. Uh, and Jason will put the contact details there. Um, I love it. I'm really passionate about this topic. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, thank you, Jason, for the invite. Thanks, Gareth. Have a great night. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.